prepare to hear God's Word this morning, I'm going to ask you to turn a little further with me into uh, the book of Job, chapter 33, and listen as I uh, read a section of Scripture. But now hear my speech, O Job, and listen to all my words. Behold, I open my mouth, and the tongue in my mouth speaks. My words declare the uprightness of my heart, and what my lips know, they speak sincerely. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Answer me if you can. Set your words in order before me, and take your stand. Behold, I am toward God as you are. I too was pinched off from a piece of clay. Let's pray. Lord, as we look this morning into this section of Scripture, really seeking to continue to consider more deeply the things that we began to consider last week as just how your Scripture sets forth your magnificence, your power, your greatness, your perfection, and how it sets before us, Lord, our own limitations, our own uh, trouble understanding and, and fully comprehending the faultiness of our human judgments. God, I would pray that this morning you would be pleased to um, help use this scripture in these ways to really humble our hearts, uh, to bring us a glimpse of the greatness and glory of God uh, that, that causes us in one sense with regard to any complaints and any accusations to be silent. But as we see your sovereignty displayed and the greatness of your power, that we don't remain silent, but we sing of who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, if God is pleased, we will work our way from chapter three, 33 through chapter 42 today. And we're going to be doing it. Now, someone was saying, is that not a bit much? Someone was asking me that when I happened to mention that this is what I was going to do. But I will tell you this. If someone was to take and preach through these chapters one by one, what you would end up having is almost the same sermon week after week after week after week because the themes continue to cycle through. And so what I want us to do is see these themes in unison and in concert together. I will not obviously cover every single verse. We are covering this section thematically. But the richness of this, I hope, is as we cover this section thematically, and then you go back yourselves and sit uh, together or sit alone and open it up and then read through the whole section, that it will have a, a real powerful effect as we come to understand uh, this section of scripture. Now Job, to really begin to get a grasp of this, we've got to start to understand certain things about what's going on here in Job. Job is, to our best understanding, giving to us the, one of the oldest accounts. Now Moses does speak of creation, and certainly Job is after creation. But Moses speaks about creation, enabled by God to do so, well after God has called Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Indeed, after 400 years of slavery and captivity and then bringing the children of Israel out, then Moses begins to compile and write the Pentateuch under the inspiration of the Spirit. Our best understanding is that Job comes from before the calling of Abraham. It is considered one of the absolute oldest books in the Bible. And, and realize this, if there's no Scripture... What is the likelihood that men's understandings of God and his working will be accurate? We began to look at that last week and see the, the deficiency. And what's, what's remarkable, if you read through this book, is Job and his friends, his three friends in particular, though a fourth younger one is named later, they do have some understanding of God. And some of the things that they say about God are accurate, are right, are faithful and consistent. And but not everything. 
And what's interesting about it, as, as you read through it at times, they go on to say things like this. God is so great, and I'm paraphrasing, so powerful that no man can understand him or his ways. And then they go on to tell you exactly what they expect God will do in every circumstance. After declaring no one can understand his ways, they then show you the uniqueness of their ability to tell you what you ought to expect from him and how God would and would not act and, and what, they, what they came up with, all of them. And even in some degree was part of Job's own misunderstanding is that if we do good, God owes us good things. And if we do bad, then God will bring us bad things. And that's their understanding of how God works. But that's not necessarily what happened here. because, And, and this is a, a, a faithful teaching. Now, we can move on forward. And, of course, there was an old covenant that God gave with the children of Israel that promised them as a nation blessing and prosperity if they do good and punishment and struggles if they do bad. But remember, that was as a nation. The uncomfortable thing about that whole scenario is the, oftentimes the righteous man among them or the righteous few among them as the nation was getting more and more wicked, it was the righteous few who were often suffering at the hands of those who were uh, the wicked. It was often the prophets who were being persecuted and mistreated, even though it doesn't make sense. The bad people are doing okay, and the few good among them are suffering. How does that work? Men's minds always get caught up in that, and this book gives us real good grounds to understand that we cannot understand God. Totally, that we cannot look at, at every circumstance that happens under the sun and say, I know what God is doing. I know why God is doing it. And then point to the actions and, and feelings of man. Because here again, in the book of Job, you come to Job, and how does the scripture testify concerning Job? Chapter 1, verse 1, just by way of introduction, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. So here, and it says that in verse 1, it says it in verse, chapter 1, verse 8, it says it in chapter 2, verse 3. Three times Job is declared as blameless and upright, one who fears God and turns away from evil. It, it even goes on to declare that actually he was the best man in the, in the entire area of the East and possibly in the entire era altogether. So what's man's simple conclusion? He is a good man, so he will receive from God only good things. Right? Now, the challenge is, where this narrative is taken up, that has been exactly what Job has been experiencing. And so his present blessing is confirming his misunderstanding that, you know what, I did good, so God owes me good. And if I do bad, then God will bring bad upon me, but I'm doing good, and so God is giving me what I deserve. And we know we come into that situation, and we have the interaction between God and Satan. And Satan says, well, the only reason this fellow is honoring you and worshiping you is because you're giving him all these good things. If you uh, take these things away from him, then he will turn from you and walk away. And so in Job chapter 1, verse 22... Job experiences the loss of his children. And, and, and not only seven times, three daughters. Goes on to say 7,000 camel, 3,000 sheep, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. He lost all of these things in one swoop. Then the scripture goes on in chapter 2 to say, show us that in the second phase of it, though he had remained faithful in the first phase, he lost now all of his own health 
and he was humbled as everyone now looks upon him as a man hated and abandoned by God. And he can't understand it. He can't understand why these problems have befallen him. And he struggles to, to understand it. And he goes on, it says in chapter 2 verse 10. But he said to her as he speaks to his wife who's telling him, just curse God and die. Which is bad wifely advice. You speak as one of the foolish women speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So here in the earliest days of his struggle, he's trusting in God. But what begins to happen as the book unfolds, the duration of his distress is extended. You know, in the early days, well, maybe God will restore my health quickly. Maybe God will, will help me in this. But it, it's extended. And he begins to get more and more discouraged. And by the time his friends come to meet him in chapters 4 through 6, we begin to see a little bit different. In, early on in all these things, Job did not sin with his lips. But later he does. And Elihu's going to call him on that because he begins to test God uh, according to his own limited understanding of what's going on. Now, when we, when we see this, these friends who have come, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, uh, in ver chapter 32, verse 1, it says this. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Now, part of the problem is, as they kept telling him, the reason why you are having problems is you have done wrong. And he keeps saying, I haven't done wrong. I mean, I, I haven't actually done anything. No, the reason why you're suffering is because you've done something wicked. You, you, you gotta admit that you've done something wicked. And he keeps saying, I haven't done anything wicked. I haven't done it. So they, they realize there's no progress to be made with Job in this. And actually, if we're talking about moral behavior, Job hasn't done anything wrong. Job has been faithful to seek to live in a way that is godly. So faithful you can see the spiritual mindedness of Job. In Job 1.5 it says. And Job said when he would call his children together. And he would offer sacrifices to God. On behalf of his children. It may be that my children have sinned. And cursed God in their heart. And thus Job did continually. So he would offer sacrifices. To, to hopefully offset any disobedience or sin. That his children may have done. Now, the, as uh, we see he's righteous in his own eyes, in verse 2 of, Je of Job 32, it says, Then Elihu. Now, this is a younger one. He wasn't mentioned with the three friends. So he seems to have been someone who was a companion of these friends, but younger, sitting there and listening to all of their counsel. All of them fully convinced. And really, all not only are these three men, but Job is really holding the same theology of these three men. If you're good, you get good. And if you're bad, you get bad. But Job's quandary is this. I'm good and I'm getting bad. I agree with you, God is like that, but here's the problem. It's not working for me. Well... There's a reason why it was not working for him. Because God was working to teach us and to teach him that that is not how God works. I might ask you this. Did Jesus ever do bad? Did he ever do wrong? Did he ever displease his father in the least? Did he get bad? Did people mistreat him? Tell lies about him? accuse him of being an ally with evil spirits, 
accuse him of blasphemy? He who himself is the way, the truth, and the life, accuse him of standing against and blaspheming the truth. I mean, so again, part of this is a, is a matter of us beginning to process things that, you know what? We, we looked last week, God's ways aren't our ways, God's thoughts aren't our thoughts, and yet somehow we still expect God's ways to be our ways, and God's thoughts to be our thoughts, that to Him to do things exactly as we would expect. And so we look at this situation to Job, and maybe even a man's heart cries out and says, look, God Himself declares Job blameless and upright. So why did He do this to Job? you realize there is something far more important than just being morally blameless and upright. And it is having a right and highly exalted view of God in His power and person, as well as a right and humbling, even indeed rightly humiliating view of man. The way that we saw Elihu begin to introduce this notion is he had said this, I too am pinched off from a piece of clay. Now that, uh, you know, that's not generally something that sounds very appealing, right? You're not going to see somebody writing that to someone in love letters. You look as someone who has been pinched off from a piece of clay. Yeah. You lost that one. Because does that sound beautiful? Does that sound valuable? Does that sound significant? Does that sound important? I'm a little piece of clay pinched off from a bigger piece of clay. Which basically means I'm pretty insignificant and not of much value. So what's nice about this is Eli, as Elihu is getting ready to correct. And some might say speak condescendingly to Job about who and what he is, Elihu is starting out saying, uh, yeah, I'm not just saying this about you, Job. This includes me. This includes everyone. We are just clay. We're just mud that has been assembled and given life to. Let's let's keep that. And so when we begin to see this, and, and Elihu begins to speak, he's so angry and upset at what the three friends have done. At the end of verse 3 of chapter 32, it says, um, he burned with anger also at Job's three friends. Or he, Verse 2 actually says, he burned in anger at Job because Job, uh, be, at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He was saying what? I am in the right, God is in the wrong. And so that made Elihu angry. How dare you think that you are in the right and that somehow God is in the wrong in this. Cannot be. And regarding the three friends, because they had no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong, their only answer is, you're in the wrong. Not realizing, no, if God is pleased to bring pain into the life of a faithful man, God is not wrong. If God is pleased to give to Paul a thorn in the flesh, when he has not yet done something seemingly deserving of that in our opinion, in the scriptures there it was to keep him from becoming elated, conceited in the flesh. Wait a second. Preemptive punishment? Is that right? Well, men say, no, that's not right. But what are we doing at that point? We are saying that God is in the wrong to do it. Can man ever say that God is in the wrong? No, all we can say is, I don't understand why God is doing this. I don't understand why this is happening. And then that should quickly follow. But I trust him. And he is good. And he is wise. And he is perfect. I don't understand. But I trust him. With everything. 
And so we, we see it here, and I, I want to begin to open this up in simple themes as we come into chapter 33. First of all, we see that idea of the measure of a man. The measure of a man starts out really there in chapter 33, verse 6. I, too, was pinched off from a piece of clay. Man is not something uh, of some great import. We weren't pinched off or, or somehow fabricated out of gold and diamonds. We were pinched off of a piece of clay. That's something that's, that's sold and traded in the market. And clay really had no inherent value until it was formed into a useful vessel by skillful hands. As it remained a lump of clay, that was something with, that anybody with even a low budget can go out and buy themselves a lump of clay. So it gives you that measure of a man, and then it goes on, and it's, this is important. When we're understanding the measure of a man, don't impute to him, don't consider to him, don't place upon him some inherent value. Recognize that we, we just are nothing valuable in ourselves, but what about our own righteousness and our own goodness? Most of us know how Isaiah says, well, all our righteousness is as filthy rags. But I want to just show you, even in Job's, I might say, his supposed sinlessness, the scripture cancels that out. Look at with me in Job 33, verse 9 and following. You say, I am pure, without transgression, I am clean. And there is no iniquity in me. Now, just because he was relative to those in his age and era, better than them, can he really go so far as to say, I am perfect and without any sin? One of the, see, one of the ways that he is actually even guilty of sin is he's guilty of thinking that God owes him something. And he's guilty of wrong thoughts concerning God and wrong judgments concerning God. And we'll see that traced out here. Look at verse 10. Behold, he finds occasion against me and counts me as in his enemies. He puts my feet in stocks and watches all my paths. And now, now Elihu says, this, this is the complaint of Job. Job claims, look, I've done nothing wrong, but God is treating me as an enemy and imprisoning me, and he's just not giving me a way of escape from all of this. In other words, I am in the right, and God is in the wrong. And Elihu answers that, behold, in this you are not right. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. That's part of the simple beginning that he just has to get in his mind. Whenever any confusion arises, here is an unshakable reality. God is greater than man. So do we really think we're going to trust our own assessment of, our, of uh, ourselves rather than his? Do we think we know what he owes us rather than him? Do we think we can hold God accountable to anything rather him than him holding us accountable? How do we understand it? You are but a man. And God is greater. Now the scriptures give, also reveal to us in say Psalm 143 verse 2. How wrong Job is. Thinking he is without transgression clean and no iniquity. Uh, Psalm 143 will go on to say. Enter not into judgment with your servant. For no one living is righteous before you. Now, I remind us also of this simple notion. We, most of us, memorize Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But somehow we still look at that verse and say, all have sh fallen short of the moral standards of God. All have fallen short of the commandments of God. All have fallen short of the righteousness of God. That's also true. But that passage does not simply say that. It says we have fallen short of what? 
the glory of God, which includes not just the acts that we do, but, but why we do them, how we think about what we do, how we think about why we do it, how we think about Him, and how we think about what He does. And so as time has gone by, and as his friends have begun to talk to him, instead of saying, look, whatever is going on, God is in the right. All glory to him. Whatever I don't see, may he reveal it to me and change me, because I am never right making him wrong. But he did not. Hold God in that exalted, perfect, and glorious place. But began to think, wait, I'm right. I haven't done anything. What's going on should not be happening. Look at, with me also. The scriptures tell us this. Uh, with regard to the, the idea that God should supposedly, so we've seen supposed sinness, now sinlessness, doesn't exist. Supposed rights before God. He owes me. Does that exist? Look at Job 34, verse 5 and 6. For Job has said, I am in the right, and God has taken away my right. So be careful. Sometimes some, uh, you know, uh, dear men who have read the book of Job, they see in, the, in chapter 1 and 2 that it says, in all this Job did not sin with his lips. And they think that that's characteristic of the whole time. No, it's up to that point. Later on, after his friends show up, and they all begin to commiserate on their confused idea about who God is and how he works, Job clearly begins to sin with his lips. I am in the right. And what? God has taken away my right. He owes me good, and he has not given me good. Is that a good thing to say? No. What, what we, I guess what Job probably wouldn't understand at that moment is uh, as bad as things were, to dare say that to God... He deserved for his pain to just multiply at that point. But God was continuing. People get confused because of the mercy of God and the patience of God to think that somehow he does not judge. I am in the right, verse 6 of Job 34. In spite of my right, I am counted a liar. God treats me like I'm a liar. God treats me like I am in the wrong. God treats me like I've made a mistake and this isn't right. I mean, you, you can see men saying this. I have my rights. Right? The criminal sits there uh, opposite the table where he, he's being interrogated. I have my rights. I demand a lawyer. I know my rights. Well, among men and within countries, we may have rights. But Job is daring to take this to the highest throne and say... I know my rights, and I'm not being treated right. Ooh. Now, before we start to be too harsh on him, the man was miserable. The man was in agony. And let us not be overconfident that we would do much better than he in that same situation. Look also with me in Job 41, what it says in Job 41.11. God then respond, is going to respond to this issue and says, Who has given, first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. In other words, what can anyone give to God that he now owes them anything? Uh, I have been faithful to you and obedient to you uh, with my life. You mean your life, the life that he's given you. And faithful not to put your hands into wickedness, the hands that he has given you. You know, this idea that somehow God would owe. 
You know, that God would be impressed. Even people will say that and they think that they're, 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 they're really trying to impress one another maybe than God. You know what? I have nothing to offer God. So I'll give him myself. I'll give him my life. All right. You know, the, the way I've oft described that would be, um, imagine my wife is growing flowers. And here these flowers are that she's grown and she's cultivated right there in our front yard. And I come home, I cut those guys off, and I, I come in and I give them to her. There you go. Look what I got for you. What's the likelihood she's going to be impressed? What's the likelihood she's going to be pleased? Or... What did you do to my flower plant? You know, I was going to be taking them off one by one and putting them in places strategically and intentionally, and you just destroyed the whole plant to bring me a patch. And they were already mine before you brought them in. It was mine to use as and when I please. And now here you are saying, there you go. You know, it would be like you going into your kids' rooms as Christmas approaches and selecting out of their closet or toy box things to box up to give to them for Christmas. You can imagine the joy and delight as they open it up and the very thing that they've had for four years and stopped playing with three and a half years ago was given to them again. We, we just think, how, how joyful would the kids be? Would, would that be the screaming and elation? Or would it be like, what's happening here? And yet, men give? What do we give to him that he hasn't given to us? I'll give you myself. I already own you. You only breathe because I give you breath. You only see because I give you sight. You only have understanding to the degree that I give you understanding. What do you give to me? What, what do I owe to you? Because whatever you could possibly barter or give, that's already mine. And actually, everything, your every breath and your every deed, because it's God's, it all ought to be done for Him, with thought of Him, in the way that's pleasing to Him. Is that what everyone always does? No, and so if God was to give men, and we often think of this, what he deserves, any time he has not given God the right faithfulness and glory that he deserves in all things, then what does man deserve? See, when God, if a man was to give God everything he's asked for, God still owes him nothing because he should do that because God made him and God, he belongs to God. If a man falls off from that and thinks or acts wrongly, does he not just deserve punishment? Who has given me a gift that I repay? The whole thing is mine. Job 35 says this uh, to, to help us understand this notion. If you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? You know, that's why when it comes to the New Testament and that God would be, would look upon our acts of obedience and that he would be pleased, and that he would promise us reward for those acts of obedience, is astounding. Because really, what does he gain from our obedience? What can we take away from him by our disobedience? He remains God, all glorious and exalted. Our good doesn't add to his greatness. Our bad doesn't take away from his perfection. If God had wanted to just ignore all men, he could do that. The passage here in, in Job 34, verse 12 and following says, if God were to, not, it were to say, done with it all, and pull back his breath and everything perishes, he would still be just. Who has given him a gift that he should repay? God has made everything and he needs nothing. We start to think he needs us. We start to think we're valuable. We start to think even so badly he owes us. But of a truth, 
And this is what's stated to Job in Job 34. Of a truth, God will not do wickedly. The Almighty will not pervert justice. You, you say that you have a right that he has denied you. You are wrong in asserting your right. Verse 13 of, of 34. For who gave him charge over the earth? And who laid on him the whole world? Don't you realize he made it all and he's in control of it? And, and then we go on to see still in the measure of man. Look at how pride is rooted in ignorance. Look at with me in uh, chapter 35. Verse 13 through 16. Surely God does not hear an empty cry. Nor does the Almighty resolve it. How much less when you say that you do not see him. That the case is before him and you wait for him. Now most of your Bibles there will have an exclamation point. Because basically his idea, the idea in the way that the language builds up is. This isn't right. I've set my case before God. And now it's time for him to fix things how I think they should be fixed. I'm waiting on him to make things right because what's going on right now is not right. He owes me better than this. I've proven it to him. Now let's see him. Give me what I should have. Ha! <sighs> if he should, and then it goes on to say this in verse um, 15 of Job 35. And now because his anger does not punish and he does not much take note of transgression. In other words, because you make this assertion, because you make this accusation and he hasn't crushed you more, he hasn't increased the pain, you think that uh, it's a neutral response from God. All right, see, he knows that what I'm accusing, that I'm in the right and he's in the wrong. He knows that I really am in the right because if, if I was in the wrong, things would be getting worse for me. So he knows. So now let's just see if he's going to fix it. That's not how it works. Goes on and says this. Verse 16. Job opens up his mouth in empty talk. He multiplies his words without knowledge. See, because here's the problem. All of his knowledge of God is based on what? Men's knowledge. This is the tragic reality. At the point of Job, they did not have the word of God. They only had the stories and legends that would be passed down from generation to generation orally. There was no scripture to be had. There was no clear revelation. And so they were starting to, to develop understandings of God that were rooted in the knowledge of men. And the scripture's asserting here very clearly that what he says is empty talk and he multiplies words without knowledge. In Job chapter 37, it says this. Teach us what we shall say to him. We cannot draw up our case because of darkness. Which means, just admit that, you know, the idea is this. If lead someone blindfolded into a dark room with no light, take the blindfold off and tell them to describe the room. What would happen at that point? How accurate would their description of the room? How, how big is the room? How high is the ceiling? What sort of furniture is in this room? How, how accurate are the answers going to be for the person who is in darkness in the room? It'll be good. A lot of it's going to be wrong, absolutely fabricated. And that's what he's trying to say. This is what's going on. When, when we would try to draw our case up before God, understand this. We are the, the limitations of the human mind. It, it's like being in darkness. We can't talk about God 
accurately with full understanding. We can't argue that he's in the wrong. We can't argue that we're in the right. When we do that, we're just not seeing things well. Because we are in darkness. So that's very humbling. Verse 24 of Job 37 goes on to say this. Therefore men fear him. And this is of God. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. Or wise in their own hearts. So what has to happen? All of our assumptions and expectations about our greatness and about God's ways... Gots to be put aside. We, we, we don't trust our own thoughts. We don't trust uh, our own ideas. We simply what? In all our ways acknowledge him. And he will direct our paths. And we can say, I don't understand why I'm facing this. I don't understand why this is happening. And that's fine. Because we are in darkness. But we know him who is light. And we know he sees us. We know that the scripture tells even in the gloom of utter darkness, it is as light before him. And so we can trust even when we cannot see what he's doing. Now we transition from, uh, from those things to uh, where when I would say the measure of man, now we transition to the greatness of God. When we see the greatness of God, it's described in these kinds of ways. Um, and this is, this, men don't like this. There is no need for court. People would draw up their case, take a man to court. With God, there is no need for court. There's no need for a case. There's no need for a discussion. People will say negatively, this, you've made yourself, uh, you know, judge, jury, all this nonsense as a negative thing. Well, well, understand this. God is himself the prosecutor, the witness, the judge, and the jury. Well, that doesn't seem fair. Well, the difference is he is a perfect witness of everything, internal and external. And so he's prosecuting. This is the way it says it here in Job 34, 21. His eyes are on the ways of man. He sees all his steps. There is no gloom or darkness where the evildoer may hide himself. He sees it all. And then verse 23. God has no need to consider a man further. Or that, that the way that that's translated in, in the New Testament is no need to investigate. He doesn't have to conduct an investigation. Let, let me send someone there. Let me go there and let me gather up the, the different pieces of evidence. Does he need that? No. Because he is an eyewitness to everything and his witness of it is true. No, means you could have two eyewitnesses. And, and, and you, you can find this out in, in, when you, if you interact with those who have been in law enforcement two eyewitnesses can see completely different things they can describe uh, someone people as having different heights as having different skin tones as having different clothes and uh and so they they recognize there's always going to be some flaw and deficiency in what the witnesses say and that's why oftentimes they know that a, a group is lying or collaborating to uh, carry out a crime because all their details are the same because they got their story straight but when they actually are just interviewing random eyewitnesses there are always discrepancies because men's perspectives their distractions their observance their errors their remembrance not so with God he doesn't need to call any witnesses why He's the witness. More than that, even if we say, no, that's not what I meant. But it is what you meant. No, I know that's not what I meant. No, what you know is wrong. Because listen, your heart, the heart of men is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Your heart can fool you into thinking you had the best of intentions. 
Your motives were thoughtful and caring. You can deceive yourself, but you know who you cannot deceive? Yeah, you cannot deceive God at all. Which is why we call out to God, make known to me my secret sins. Search me and try me and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I'm not trusting that I know even my own heart and motive. God, show me my errors that I don't see. Because I don't want to justify myself. Paul even says, look, I don't even know of anything that I may have done wrong, but I am not thereby acquitted. He recognizes even when we might deem ourselves without error, I handled myself in this situation flawlessly. In this issue that I've got with this other person, I did everything right. I did from beginning to end. And the way I said it, the pay, I mean, if you had seen it, I was perfect, but them, oh my. We can think like that. Or we can think, yeah, I was a little rough there, but that was appropriate because of what they were doing. And, and, and we, we always can fix it so that we were in the right. And, and those of us who have been parents, particularly if we've raised um, siblings who have any proximity of age, we can watch this play out on a stage. And it's uh, not, not pleasant entertainment, but it's evidence that, wow, it's just so easy to delude and deceive ourselves. But it, God doesn't need that. Um, this, the same idea is this, but so, so we don't have... What's interesting is this. It's not even in a situation where um, God doesn't even have to call us as a witness. Him as a witness to speak to his own crimes. God doesn't even need to call us as a witness because our witness concerning ourselves isn't even useful. Because he already knows everything. Which means, uh, who can stand before God then? Who can stand accepted? I mean, if God himself is the, is the full witness and he is the prosecutor and, and he is the one who is going to carry out the judgment and sentence, then what's our hope? Well, brothers, in Christ, we, the scripture tells us that we, in a, in a sense, have Christ as like a criminal defense attorney. But more than a defense attorney, but, but one who would put himself in our place to take our punishment. Who will defend us. It tells us this. I love the way it says it in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father. Right? We can't make excuse for ourselves. We can't defend ourselves. Nobody can defend us. But you know who can defend us? Our Savior. He could stand there and say, and, 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 and say, I'm at work within that one. And the sin that he has committed, I've paid for that. That's covered. What an amazing thought that we have. Jesus Christ, the righteous. We have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. What a powerful phrase. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not our sins only, but also for the sins of those, in a sense, throughout the whole world. Wow. How powerful is that? The scripture reminds us also of the greatness of God when it speaks of him as the creator the commander, the corrector. It speaks, for example, of his power as being wielded for his perfect purpose. You could see, for example, in uh, Job 36. It says, verse 22, Behold, God is exalted in power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has prescribed his ways? Or who can say you've done wrong? Well, Job could. And a lot of people can, but whenever they do that, they themselves are in the wrong when they make those accusations. You can't challenge God. You cannot say this isn't right because God is the one in His perfect wisdom who has determined His ways and God is the standard for all right. So who can, who, who can challenge Him in that way? Verse 24 of, Romans, of Job 36. Remember to extol His work 
of which men have sung. All mankind looked on it, and man beholds it from afar. Verse 26 of 36. Behold, God is great, and we know him not. The number of his years are unsearchable. God is great, and we know him not. His greatness, the sense of that is his greatness is beyond our knowledge. And when our knowledge is saying something's wrong, something's not right, something's not good, something's not perfect. No, it is. He is just great and we know him not. We don't comprehend it. Uh, listen to Job 37 verse 5. God thunders wonderfully, wondrously with his voice. And he does great things that we cannot comprehend. I mean, so if there's something that's going on that doesn't seem right. What do we recognize? God does great things that we cannot comprehend. It's okay to say, I don't understand it. But we follow up the, I don't understand it, I don't comprehend it, I don't get it, with what? God is great. Recently, I, 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 there, was a, there was a situation where um, someone was speaking about God. And they, they were telling a group of people who were gathered together on a Sunday morning. They were saying, look, we need to understand the goodness of God. Because a brother was in the hospital recently and went to the hospital and saw how many people that there were in the hospital. And we're not in the hospital. We're right here. That's evidence of the goodness of God. I tell you this, even if we are the guy in the hospital, even if we are the person who, who, is, who is bound up in agony and distress, even if we are the man or woman who is laying on our deathbed, God is good and God is great. Our tendency to assess God's goodness, greatness, graciousness on, on, on what we get is not right. No matter what I suffer. Is God less great? Is God less good? When he, when he gives me an abundance. I declare his greatness. Were he to take it all away. Would I declare his greatness? I speak of him as rich in grace and mercy. When I, when I have abundance. Will I speak of him as rich in grace and mercy. When I'm way, way behind. God's person doesn't change. His glory and greatness does not change based on our prevailing circumstances. We've got to grasp that so clearly. Um, it goes on to say this in Job 37. Speaking of his power being wielded in the storms. They turn around and around by his guidance. To accomplish all that he commands on the face of the habitable earth. God himself controlling storms. And look at what it says in verse 13. It shows us when God is controlling even storms. And God controlling all things. He has his purpose. It may be whether it is for correction. Someone is doing wrong. A storm has come. And they're, they're facing the onslaught of the storm. As a, as a corrective of, of punishment. Maybe it's for that. But what, what else might it be? Or for his land. Or for his love. He causes it to happen. And here's the idea. So, we say, so it's either love for me. Or it's correction to me. Sometimes you got to realize, maybe you're not the center of the whole thing. Sometimes it's for his land. Sometimes maybe you are suffering under the hand of God and, and you are hopefully suffering with patience and trust so that someone else can look upon you and their faith be encouraged at that time. Maybe it isn't about correcting you. Maybe it isn't about, uh, maybe it's not about you. What if it is about God and his glory and causing us to be recognized 
I'm not the center of the universe. What's interesting is people go back scientifically and they say, oh, there were all kinds of problems with Galileo and Copernicus. And as these people come in and, and try to say that the earth isn't the center of the universe and it was postulated then at that point, it, it's not the earth that's the center of the universe. It's the sun that's the center of the universe. And they were considered heretics for that. And I'm going to go a little further. Is our sun the center of the universe? We've now seen that it is just one of many suns in one of many galaxies. But, but we somehow in all of those galaxies and all of those suns and all of the stars and all of the planets and all of that space, here is a little piece of breathing clay on one little dusty planet and thinking, I'm the center of the universe. Is that right? No, there's one who sits enthroned above it all. And if we say, God, if you can bring yourself glory through whatever you are pleased to do in my life, that's fine. If you will be more glorified, Paul would say, if God is more glorified in my death, then he'll die. If he's more glorified by his life, then he'll continue to serve. However, God is most glorified in him at the moment. He's completely ready to submit to whatever is God's purposes. The Lord takes over really explaining these things further in Job 38. And he goes back to the, me the measure of a man. We're going to zip through some things. Um, in Job 38, now God deals with, uh, takes over from Elihu and just takes over himself and says this to Job. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? All of your accusations, they come from your own ignorance. You don't know anything. Why? Because you're just a man. Stop trying to think you understand everything. Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. And he begins to question him with very challenging and provoking questions. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Uh, is that a long, drawn-out consideration to figure out where you were? Uh, I did not exist. Oh, so you are, so, so who made everything exist? So who brought it all into existence? So who's it all for? Oh, wait a second. Um, he goes on. Where were you when I laid the foundation? of? Tell me if you have understanding. And then in, uh, all the way through to verse 38, he relates it to nature and to space. The storms and the wind and the lightning and the power and the stars. What's your part in all those things? In chapter 38 even, and he starts to relate it to animals. What about animals? Did you bring in lions? Do you help provide for ravens? Do you control the birth of goats? And he goes on with wild donkeys and wild ox and ostrich and horse and hawk and eagle. And speaks of all these animals and what they do instinctively and how they act and how they behave. And asking, what was your part in all that? To where, uh, what's the answer? He's starting to realize, oh my. And, and so uh, then he goes on so strongly in Job chapter 40, verse 2, and God says this, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Are you really? Are you really going to say, I'm in the wrong and you're in the right? And so what does Job then respond to that verse in chapter 40, verse 3 to 5? Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. <laughs> okay, I do recognize I am a little lump of clay. Um, what shall I answer you? Here's now what I know is I ought to really be saying. 
when it comes to uh, judging what you do, hand over my mouth. When it comes uh, to uh, putting myself up and my rights and my importance, hand over my mouth. When it comes to me trying to assert my knowledge and my ways against you and your ways, my power against yours, my rights against yours, I put my hand over my mouth. I'm done talking. Absolutely silenced by the sovereign. There is a sense in which you look at that and he even says this, I have spoken once and I will not answer. Twice, because he knows he spoke way more than once. <laughs> I will proceed no further. I'm done. <laughs> no more talking, no more excuses. Not that I get it, but I get who you are and I get who I am. That pretty much settles it. But strangely enough, God's not done. <laughs> He's got him silent where he should be silent. But he doesn't want to simply leave him silent and ignorant. He wants him to grow in his understanding. And, and so he says this in verse 7. Dress for action like a man. I will question you make it known to me. Will you put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me to be made right? Which means this. I'm not, it's not enough that you're not going to talk anymore. You're still thinking that you're, wrong, you're right and that I'm wrong. I'm not wanting you to just outwardly do the right thing. you got to get fully fixed. Your whole heart and mind. So, as if the, see, because all he said is, I'm of small account. I'm going to be silent. You know what he didn't say? I was wrong. You owe me nothing. You haven't denied me my rights. I don't deserve better from you. He didn't say that. And so he, th he put his hand over his mouth. I'm not going to fight anymore. I'm not going to contend anymore. Are we done? No escape. Your heart and mind are still not right. Adorn yourself. And he goes on then. Adorn yourself with majesty. Pour over the overflowings of your anger. Can you look on everyone who is proud and abase him? Verse 12. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Can you do these things? Now he begins to make things bigger. He, he, he says things like this. He, he speaks of the behemoth. One of the absolute biggest animals who... who just no one can do anything with. He can walk into a raging river and it's nothing to him. He gets even bigger and speaks of the Leviathan, this tremendous beast where, it, you know, when throwing spears and harpoons is like flinging toothpicks at the guy. No effect at all. And men would not rouse them, but you would come to rouse me. Verse four, uh, chapter 41, verse 9 says this. Behold, the hope of man is false, and he is laid low even at the sight of him. That's the Leviathan. No one is so fierce that he dares stir him up. No one can stand before the Leviathan. So what did he say then? Who then is he that can stand before me? Who has first given me? that I should repay him. Whatever is under heaven is mine. Here Job now breaks his silence. Look at what it says in Job 42, verse 1 and following. Job answers, and we're concluding with this. The Lord said, I know. He, Job said to the Lord, I know you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You're in absolute power. You're carrying out your will. What? Who is this? Now he's speaking of himself. That hides counsel without knowledge. Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. So now he's not simply being silent. He's speaking forth of his own error. His own deficiency. His own inadequacy. His own dependency. Here... Uh, because he had said here, I will speak and I will question you. You make it known to me. Now look what it says in verse 5. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and repent 
in dust and ashes. Now that's a powerful picture. Because from dust we come, to dust we shall return. And so the, the picture he's basically saying is this. I despise myself. Here I was asserting myself in the right, and now here I will declare this. You know what I deserve? Just death. I just deserve to return to dust. That's all I really deserve. And so he's absolutely humbled. This important thing, all of this. So what we see with this is, and I just want to, I got to say this in, in simple conclusion. Here is Job, morally righteous, doing, uh, not doing wickedly, doing his absolute best to, to live in a way that is pleasing to God. And all of this trouble befalls him by God's design. God is the one who has directed Satan's attention to him. And if we see the whole scope of Job, what was Job's deficiency in this day? Did he, uh, he wasn't living wrongly. He seemed to be spiritually minded. His deficiency is that he had wrong doctrine. He had a wrong doctrine of man. He had a wrong doctrine of God. He did not understand God's ways and God's work. And he sought to understand them in light of man's mind and man's sense of right. And so all of these miseries came upon him so that he indeed might learn God is great and glorious at all times, in all places. Man is small, of no account, cannot complain, cannot rise up against God. God owes nothing to us that we might demand it from Him. Indeed, we ourselves are worthy of nothing. But God is great. He is glorious. And then we come on to the New Testament that He in His greatness and glory, and though we are but lumps of clay, He set His love upon us in Christ Jesus and made us His treasured possession. Christ has come, and we who would have no way to defend ourselves and no escape from the righteous judgment of God, now we have someone who has granted us escape because He has borne the wrath, He has paid the punishment, and the Scripture says, He ever lives to make intercession for us. Job repented here at the end. His friends had not. God told his friends, you'd go to Job and you repent. And have Job pray for you that I would forgive you. So they had to go to Job because Job was going to be for them an intercessor. And likely an instructor. Because they had the same doctrine going into it that he had. And God had changed him. <laughs> He's going to bring them to, to him, and now he's going to intercede to God on their behalf, and, he's going to and, and God is going to listen, and he's going to be able to declare to them, you know what, we had it all wrong. But I'll tell you this, God was going to hear and then not punish those three friends in the intercession of Job. You know what the scripture tells us in Hebrews? We have a better intercessor. Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. So, understand this. We are all pinched off from a lump of clay. We're all just, you know, I was going to say it crassly. I was going to say we're all just breathing dirt bags. But, which isn't necessarily wrong, but that has a, a, a little bit of a harsh connotation to it. But we're just, we're just dust and clay given life. And that, that he would endow us with his grace 